are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Do you guys believe that Jesus changes people? Amen. Do you believe that? Amen. That he's changed hardened criminals into men of compassion who seek truth and justice, who do good? Do you believe that he's also, he can also change angry fathers into loving and gracious men? Amen. Amen. Do you believe that he can change um, people who pursue hedonism, pleasures of the world, into people who instead prefer pursuing pleasures of knowing God and making him known? Amen. Amen. The gospel is radical. That's the nature of the gospel. It changes. It changes everything. Now, radicalism, I know, is, is met with much resistance today because of terrorism. And, and so radical, radicalism is synonymous with hatred and anger and killing. But the radical nature of Christ following is different because it's extreme in love. You are called to be extreme in serving. You're called to be extreme in giving, extreme in being compassionate, extreme in mercy, extreme in grace. So it's okay to be a radical follower of Christ. Amen? Radical Christianity is countercultural. It opposes the world and seeks God's kingdom standard in, uh, instead. In terms of business, I think of Chick-fil-A. Who loves Chick-fil-A? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> if you never had Chick, but this is like one of my biggest regret. Before Chick Fil A really had a presence here in Northern Virginia, and I never really heard of it at all. I remember I did my DTS, my missions training in Hawaii, and I actually met the VP of uh, the VP son of Chick Fil A, who attended, who was in my missions uh, great class. And so he, so I, we're talking. I said, so you know, blah blah. He goes, yeah, my dad's the. Um, have you ever Chick Fil A? I was like, no. And he's like, oh, okay, well, you know, my dad's the VP and, and stuff like that. He showed me he pictures of his house, and it was literally a state, right, um, and everything else. Either way, what happened afterwards was um, we, we, we grew close, and he said, hey, Dave, I want to give you a, a present. I don't know if you have Chick-fil-A's, Dave, where you're at, but you'll probably get some. But either way, here's a little present. He gave me this little box for over 400 free Chick-fil-A sandwich coupons. And I was like, Thanks. So I remember that was before I was in ministry. I was interning at a bank, and um, I remember speaking to one of the coworkers who was talking about Chick-fil-A just all of a sudden. I said, oh, Chick-fil-A, I have it in my car. Here, you want it? And she's like, oh, yes. And I go, sure. I mean, I don't know where the Chick-fil-A is, but whatever, I've never heard of it. I'm kind of hating myself now. <laughs> but in terms of business, I think of Chick-fil-A when, when, when it comes to the radical nature of gospel transformation in Christ Jesus. Because this is a store, a restaurant that opens six days a week. And they do well. Have you been to the 150 or even the one Target area? It is busy. If you ever go to the drive-thru, there's no drive-thru. It's just a line. It's, it's huge. And they do well, and yet for some reason they close down on Sunday, one of the most highly profitable days. They close. It's crazy. It's radical. Why? Because they desire to reserve the day of rest Sabbath to honor God rather than make a profit. That's amazing. 
No one else does that. No one else thinks of that. Or how about even long lines of Chick-fil-A again, the backlash the restaurant received when they affirmed traditional marriage, or i.e. biblical definition of marriage. People threatened them. Lawsuits were thrown at them. People threatened to boycott the, the restaurant. People even attacked them with smear campaigns. They threatened even the lives of the employees. But what happened? Did Chick-fil-A retaliate? Did, did, they, did they try to sucker punch him back? No. During times of need, like for instance, the past blizzard, what did Chick-fil-A do? They went out into the highways where stranded motorists were, and they handed out free food. They served the community that they were that they were in. Not only that, if you go to them any day, every day perhaps, and you are without money, you are without income, you are homeless perhaps, you are in need, you will automatically get a meal on the house. Now, don't take advantage of that. (laughs) But it's true. They want to serve. Why? Because Christ served them. It's radical. They go out of the way to demonstrate the love of Christ. Or what about someone who was steeped in partying, sleeping around, hooking up, someone who always needs to go to happy hour to get that buzz before they get smashed that night. Then all of a sudden, life changes. They completely change. Refusing now to compromise their time, their bodies, their mind, their hearts, their spirit, preferring now to engage in things that are wholesome and things that are good, things that are edifying. They prefer to have deep talks of God's love and God's truth with their community, with their fellow believers, brothers and sisters, with their life groups, instead of talking about who they slept with, and talk, instead of talking about how messed up, how jacked up they're going to get that weekend. What makes people change? But if you really think about it, radical Christianity isn't so radical. It's simply obedience. It's simply seeking first God and his righteousness and his kingdom, is it not? But in order for these changes to happen, in order for yours and my affection for the things of God to emerge, in order for us to now desire to pursue holiness and things that are good and things that are righteous and things that are godly, we must change. But that change begins with Jesus, right? It begins with Jesus because change with Jesus starts from the inside out. So we're not just talking about kicking that habit or quitting that addiction. That's not change. That's just behavior modification. Anyone can do that. We're talking about true, eternal, everlasting transformation. So I, wanna, I have a few points I want to make today. And I realize, guys, I may have gotten carried away. I have like over eight pages to talk about. So let's go, okay? The first one is this. The first step of that change begins with Christ. Notice it's not about you, about Christ making us sons of God. Okay. Now, one of the fundamental truths of the gospel is the biblical teaching of adoption, and we'll actually go over more of that in depth next week. But just to give you an idea of what that is, the Westminster Catechism says this, adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number of, we have the right to all the privileges of the sons of God. So you see, the idea of adoption is amazing because it gives us one of the most brilliant and most powerful and most clear point that we cannot be saved by keeping the law. What do I mean by that? How can orphans get adopted? By simply being good? 
by making sure they don't rebel against their foster homes or orphanages? How does one make oneself adopted or more adoptable? That's a ridiculous question. Because if you really understand what adoption is, it's this. You become a child of someone by the action of the parent. Do you not? Whether it's natural or by adoption. One commentator said this, no one ever works his way into a family. The highest position one can receive simply by achieving and working a merit in the household is a servant. He continues, a servant may live with the family, do the family's laundry, cook the family's meals, and do all these things for decades, but without ever becoming a member of the family. Growing up, my younger brother, he had a nanny for 15 years. Know that. My little brother Danny had a little nanny. And she lived with us. She did everything. And yet we still called her, if you translate in Korean, just lady, Ajuma. Right? And we would never say she's family. We would always say she's like family. You see, the only way to become a son is by adoption. And this can only be granted by the will of the Father, not by the works of you or the servant. There's nothing you can do to make yourself a son of God. Because it was God, if you recall, who walked through the split sacrifice. It was God who made that oath on our behalf. It was God who then brings you in. And all you need to do is simply receive it. Receive him as a gift of God's free grace. You know, in preparation for the sermon, I remember just reading articles and articles of uh, kind of adoptions, adoption stories. And, and I would always scroll down to the bottom because, you know, reading the comments are always fun. But in this one case, man, it really made me kind of cringe because I, I read this one individual who the author was talking about how she adopted a paraplegic, mentally handicapped child. And the comment, this one woman who apparently has obviously no sense of self-awareness or filter says, why would you ever adopt someone like that? Someone, that who, someone who you have to wash for the rest of your life or for, for the remainder of their life. Someone you have to take care of for the rest of your life. She won't be able to stand up. She won't be able to walk around. She can't help with errands. She can't do this. She can't even do the most basic things. She's not going to make your life easy. Really, Captain Obvious. Do you know how the author responded? She says, I guess you don't know what adoption is or what being a parent is then. And she says, I'm not adopting her because of what I can get from her. I'm adopting her because I want her. Because I love her. Man, when I read that, her response, I started tearing up. God adopts you not because of what he can get from you. Not because in any way that you are somehow qualified for his adoption. There's nothing that we can ever offer up to him. He adopts you simply because he wants you, simply because he loves you. Praise God, amen? amen. In verses 26, 27, I paraphrase, by believing in Jesus, you become sons of God. Your faith, it demonstrates that you are baptized into him by the power of the Holy Spirit, and so you have been clothed with Christ's life or his righteousness. Jesus makes us into sons of God through Christ's effort, not ours. 
That's why, man, every single day you better praise God. Praise Jesus. Don't ever say, praise me, praise me. Praise Jesus. Through Christ's effort. Not ours. Now, this is for the ladies in preparation for this week. Don't roll your eyes at the statement of sons of God. How many of you guys already did that? Huh? We might all ask, why not sons and daughters of God? Why not children of God than rather sons of God? Let me ask you all, do you believe that the Bible is God's word? Amen? Then do you believe that what is written before us has a reason for saying what it does? Yes? Amen? Good. The Bible is not putting women down. Scriptures were written in a different time and place. Therefore, understanding the cultural context is important. Turn to your neighbor and say, context is important. Let me give an example of cultural context. If you came up to me with a basketball in hand and say, PD, Pastor David, I'm going to break your ankles. I will know that you're talking about crossing me up where my weak sauce attempt at defense will result in me tripping over myself and ultimately falling down resembling the look of my ankles breaking. But what if you were to travel back in time, maybe in the 1800s, with a basketball in hand, and you go to some random individual and say, sir, I'm going to break your ankles. <laughs> you probably see them run in horror, at least whip out the rifle, right? So let's talk about women during biblical times. They had nothing in that culture because they were nothing in that culture. No rights. They were virtually the possessions of their fathers or husbands. Now that's not to say their fathers didn't love them. They certainly did. But either way, you probably did not want to be a daughter under those terms. But sons, on the other hand, were different. They were someone. They were somebody. They were the heirs of their father's wealth. The son acted with their father's authority. Sons were as great as the father's status in the community. Now, I remember many years ago, this is, well, I was a pastor, many years ago, I went to a Korean restaurant. And so when I got there, I realized the service was just horrible. Horrible. I'm not going to tell you which restaurant. They got a lot better, by the way. I don't think they were intentionally bad. I think they were short-staffed and just, they're just kind of maybe oblivious, unaware. Well, after telling myself, I'm never going to come back here again, a waitress pops her head out and says, oh, Pastor David. Now, she's from the Korean ministry side, and I've never seen her before. She clearly knows me. And I go, oh, in Korean, I say, hello, how are you? And then she quickly tells the staff, this is Pastor David. He's the son of Pastor Lim from Shining Star Community Church. Immediately, all the staff, they were like, oh, wow, he looks just like him. Another one said, no, he's more handsome. Another one said, no, he's much more handsome. Now, I'm just kidding, right? <laughs> but immediately, their service shot up. I got a free dish, too. That's called service. All because they knew who my father was. So sons in that culture especially were equal to their father in many ways. They owned everything their father owned. So hear me out, people, okay? Especially to our ladies here. You want Christ to make you a son. 
okay? You want Christ to make you a son, and that's exactly what he's done. So don't take offense at the masculine word for sons to refer to all Christians, both male and female. In fact, there's this new translation called the TNIV. Do not buy it. And it translates this part to, you are all children of God. And I think that was a mistake, and I think most would agree as well, because if you start changing and correcting all biblical language to be more PC or inclusive, then you will miss out on the radical and revolutionary nature of what the author is saying, namely Paul here. In ancient cultures, daughters, women, could not inherit property. Sons, they got it all. Sons were the legal heir. That's why the gospel tells us that we are sons of God in Christ, meaning we are heirs. Look, I'm married physically to my wife, Grace, but I'm also married spiritually to Jesus. And in, and in the Bible, Jesus is considered the groom, making me and every other male who is a Christian a what? A bride. I'm a bride of Christ. Both men and women who are united to Christ in marriage are called the bride of Christ. Men are part of his son's bride, and women are his sons, his heirs. If you don't let Paul call Christian women sons of God, then you're missing out on the radical and wonderful nature of that claim. Jesus makes us sons of God. Amen? Amen. That means you get it all. That means you get it all. You know, my wife and her family, they lived all along the Bible belt. My in-laws are pastors and they're church planners, and they have been faithfully serving the Lord for, gosh, well over 30 years, almost 40 maybe, for a long time. And one thing you need to know is that in the South, it's an entirely different culture. First of all, when you greet people here in, here in at least Northern Virginia, D.C., well, you, you don't greet people, right? You just walk away. But you say, hi, or how are you? And then people will respond, how are you? And you go, how are you? And that's it. You don't really respond to how are you. You don't say, I'm fine. You say, how are you, how are you? And you walk away. But, you know, in the South, it's different. And so I remember at least what my, to- what my wife told me about her dad doing ministry in Alabama. That's where they live right now. Is that they greet people, how are your mom and them? How you mauling them? So just imagine a Korean pastor who's a grandpa, right? He's a grandpa with a slight Korean accent going around to people from home to home saying, how you mauling them? But another interesting thing about the South is, is another question that a lot of people ask. And that's, who is your daddy? Who's your daddy? Now, I know we play with that question a lot, but you kind of say it in jest, right? It's like, who's your daddy? I remember saying that to Joe when we played basketball. I'm like, who's your daddy? But it's a real question down there. Because depending on who your father or who your daddy is, it would establish your place in that world. If your daddy was known as a good man, reputable man, successful man, then you were esteemed too. But if he was known as a town drunk, you'd receive pity and the look of disdain from a lot of people. So who we think we are is largely determined by the answer we give when asked, who's your daddy? And in the face of the world's accusations that are constantly trying to bring you down to confuse your identity in an attempt to redefine you and say, this is what you need to be, this is what you ought to do, and and the, the the, the attempt that the world's trying to lead you astray, you just remember who your daddy is. He's God. 
He's the one who you can affectionately call Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa, because in Christ we are sons of God. You are not pointless. You are not purposeless, hopeless, unwanted, unloved, or to be pitied. In Christ, you're actually the quite opposite. You are blessed. You are loved. You are known. So who's your daddy? Don't ever forget that. Another point is this. But sons of God is not all that he makes us. In Christ, not only are we sons of God, but in Christ, we become one, one family. Turn to your neighbor and say, we're one family. You know, America has always been known as a melting pot where people from all places in the world come together, different backgrounds, different cultures, different tongues, different races. We come together, melted down into one people, one nation, a concept of particular presidential candidates since we forget or ignore. Look, there are many things that can divide us, right? Political views, lifestyle differences. But Paul here, he's addressing an issue or several issues that dwarf those petty issues. He talks about ethnic differences. He talks about rank differences. And he talks about gender differences. Those are things that simply singing kumbaya and hoping to hold each other's hand and enforcing integration of these differences is not really going to fix anything. Jesus is the only one who can make us truly, authentically, genuinely one family. One family. Which is why when I traveled to South Africa and I was able to actually worship and go to a small little church hut, literally a hut, with 12 African men there who I've never met before. And I enter there and they looked at me seeing this weird guy come in and I go, hi, you guys having service? And they said, yes. Immediately we started worshiping. Immediately. It didn't matter where I was from. It didn't matter where they were from. It didn't matter that there was... Differences in language and thought and culture. No, no, no. It's not because I'm not because I, I'm not racist. No, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that he has Jesus and so do I. Period. He has Jesus and so do I. And so here are a few examples Paul gives to show that we are one family. Jesus, he tore down the wall between Jews and Gentiles. Now, from the beginning of Galatians series, you guys knew that there was an issue between Jews and Gentiles, right? Jews were never associated with Gentiles. They never entered the home of a Gentile. They never even touch a Gentile. To deal with anything with a Gentile would mean that they would be unclean. There was such hatred between those races, and it was bitter, and it was deadly, and the hostility still continues today, even in the Middle East. So Jesus, who... As we know, on Palm Sunday, start today, he entered into Jerusalem to begin his journey to that cross. To that cross by taking the judgment that both sides deserved. To bring peace, bring reconciliation, not to one another, but to him. Jesus had left no reason whatsoever for this type of division to continue. So let me say this. If any, in any way you are racist or you've been bigoted or prejudiced or discriminated because someone's race, culture, background, you are wrong. You are wrong. You must stand up to that. 
There's absolutely no rhyme or reason to blame and hate one another because of race or nationality in an attempt to justify yourself. This was especially relevant in the churches of Galatia since Jewish believers would not accept non-Jewish believers because that racism, that hatred, that division had been inbred for so long. But Christ, he has come to make us one. Black, white, Asian, people of all races and creed. He is the unifier, don't you see? Another thing is this, Jesus also made us one by bridging the gap between slaves and freemen. Now, when you read this verse that mentions slavery, I'm sure a lot of you guys thought, oh, not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. People immediately pull back in horror thinking, does God condone slavery? In fact, this is an old argument that many who oppose Christianity simply love throwing at us. Much like the reason for sons of God rather than children of God, what is everything? Context. There may be the tendency to look at slavery as something that was done long ago, but we should all know that even today, there are over 27 million people who are enslaved today, whether it's through forced labor or whether it's through sex slavery and so on. Now, the Bible never outright condemns the practice of slavery. Instead, it gives instructions on how they should be treated. Now, you're thinking, that's even worse, Pastor David. So the Bible is condoning slavery then, is it not? Well, let me hear me out first. Slavery in biblical times was different than the slavery we're accustomed to reading about that was practiced just a few centuries ago, if not a few decades ago. In the Bible... People weren't enslaved because of their nationality or the color of their skin. Slavery in the Bible times was more about economics. It was more about the matter of social status than anything else. Have you guys ever heard of this term, indentured servitude? Right? It's kind of like that people would sell themselves as slaves when they cannot pay off their debts. A lot of people in Europe, when they want to come over to this land, would serve and sell themselves as indentured slaves or servants so that they could get free pass here. Even in the New Testament, sometimes doctors and lawyers and even politicians were slaves slaves of someone else at one point or another because they had debt. Some people preferred lives as slaves because it would ensure that all their needs would be provided for. Slavery in America in the past few centuries was often based exclusively on skin color. Many people a few decades ago, just a few decades ago, believed that black people were inferior human beings. The Bible condemns race-based slavery because Scripture teaches us that all men are created in the image of God. All men. And here's the fact of the matter. Slavery in the Bible, get this and understand this, slavery in Scripture, slavery in the Word of God, in no way, shape, or form resembled the racial slavery that plagued our world in the past few centuries. Not only that, the Bible also condemns man-stealing. Exodus 21.16 says, Anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. Even in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 1.8-10, among the list of ungodly and sinful people says, These are people who are considered ungodly and sinful. Murderers, perjurers, liars, adulterers, and enslavers, or meaning slave traders. 
And so just as Paul said in the book of Philemon, whether you're a slave, meaning poor and in debt or low socioeconomic class, underprivileged or in a difficult circumstance, a slave, he says, if you are a slave but you are in Christ, then you are one with your master who is educated, free, has money, is not in debt, and is living comfortably. You are one. Jesus bridges the gap between the two. Jesus not only frees us from the rank or class difference, but he also frees us from slavery to sin and gives us new life. Therefore, we are one in Christ. Turn to your neighbor and say, we are one in Christ. Slave or free, right? Also, Jesus makes us one family to bring unity between the sexes. The Bible is not sexist, people. Jesus is certainly not sexist. In a world that was dominated by men and marginalized women as property, Christ came to bring peace to both sexes. This isn't an argument. By the way, a lot of people misinterpret this part. This is not an argument for equality between men and women, that men and women are somehow the exact same, same traits, same roles, same responsibility, same everything. No, we believe that God has made men and women distinctly different, and it's these differences that make us uniquely men and women. So when we serve God, it's consistent with how he made us, and within these different roles and functions that's he, that he has revealed to us in Scripture. We are not the same. Paul here is not teaching egalitarianism, that men and women are all the same. Instead, he's teaching that in light of the oppressive state of that time that women had to endure, that they were marginalized, that they were thrown away, that they were just thrown to the side, that they had no value, that they had no say, that they had no testimony, that they had nothing of value in that culture in that time. He's saying that in Christ, women were equally loved. He was saying at that time, women are equally children of God, equally clothed with Christ, equally possessed by Christ, and equally heirs to the promises of Abraham. God loves all. He loves both men and women, and he demonstrates that through Jesus. Jesus was so radical that when it came to the role of women and to the value of women during that time, Jesus, he, he lifted them up. Jesus, he never brushed them aside. He even called women his disciples. He received their support. He received their worship. This is how valued Jesus, uh, that, uh, how valued women were in Jesus' life. He chose a woman who had no testimony. If she were in the court of law, no one would listen to her. She has no say. And yet, Jesus selected a woman who had no testimony, who had no public worth, who had no position, who had no say in that culture, in that day and age, to be what? The first witness to his resurrection. And to go out and declare it to the disciples. All throughout the New Testament, we find women partnering and serving alongside men in, in the church of Christ valued and esteemed by our king. <clears throat> Verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now the last verse of this passage will be our last point. If you are Christ, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In Jesus, we are Abraham's seed. We are one family. Turn to your neighbor and say, we are one family. Say it slowly as I can drink. (laughs) You see, I hope it becomes ever more evident to you all that the promise of God was through Abraham's singular seed, offspring, not offsprings. The blessing and promise of God that he made to Abraham 4,000 years ago, it doesn't really have much to do with Israel, really, but has everything to do with that one true seed, that one true heir, God's son, Jesus Christ. That's the greatest blessing, amen? He is. And here's the beauty of it all. We can come to that inheritance by our connection to Jesus. Nothing else, no one else. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, male or female, black or white, if you're a slave or a freeman, rich or poor, educated or an uneducated, orphan or you have parents, there's nothing about us that has anything to do with us being qualified to have God as our Father, except for the qualification Christ gives us as we trust in Him and place our faith in His life and His death and His resurrection for our salvation. You and I cannot qualify ourselves to the Father. Christ qualifies us. It is by His effort, don't you see? This is great news, people. If you belong to Jesus, then you belong to God and you have all of who he is and all of what he gives. If you belong to Jesus, you will have glory and you will be able to share in the eternal inheritance. Meaning what? This life is not it. It is not the end. Invest in Christ and his kingdom. Invest in God's plan and his purpose. Invest, and this is the best way in investing in God's kingdom. You want me to tell you what it is? Investing in people's lives. Investing in the lives of people who have one or two destinations, heaven or hell. Invest in their lives. Preach the gospel. Share the word of God. Lead them, disciple them, mentor them, pray for them. So don't ever think that life is meaningless or ordinary. Don't ever bind to the notion that life is even about you and only about you. Don't get weighed down by your past mistakes and the circumstances of your upbringing. Don't get bogged down by your current mistakes and future uncertainties. Don't use differences in race, culture, sex, language, or lack of commonality to limit you or anyone else from knowing Christ. Yeah, I gotta say, there's a, there's a life group. You'll probably figure it out in like a second. And um, the life group has more married people <laughs> and has a particular guy who's not married and young in college. And I had a lunch with him and I said, how's that going? And I was so encouraged by what he said. He said, I'm learning a lot from them. I'm learning a lot from them. I want to encourage you, man, don't just go to people who look like you. Don't just reach out to people who are in your age. Like if you want, if we want this ministry, English ministry of Shining Star Community Church to thrive, to flourish, 
we got to make sure that we wave that banner of we are one family. One family. Not just college students, not just young professionals, not just married people, not just people with children, not just older people, not just... No. One family. Do you want that? Because I'll tell you, God wants that. No matter where you came from, no matter how undeserving you might be, no matter how broken you are in Christ, you have a new father. In Christ, you have a new life. In Christ, you have a new family. Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, in Christ, we are all sons of God. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray now. Now today marks the day when Christ triumphantly entered into the city. Palms were waved, laid out before him. Hosanna, Hosanna, the one who saves. Hosanna, Hosanna, our salvation. Hosanna, Hosanna, the Messiah. And if you join us for the next few days, well, for the week in the early morning prayer service, you will see, you will see just how we as people change so quickly. But you will also see the steadfastness, the constance, the consistency of God and his love for you. Now, I hope you guys are challenged today with the encouragement that we are one family. And if in any way you feel lost or lonely or abandoned, simply just confused in your life and where you're at, you know that saying in the wilderness, look up and find the North Star. Well, how about look up and find God? Look up and see it's your father. And he will give you a new purpose. He will give you a new identity. He will give you the change in your life that you need. He will bring the transformation that nothing else in this world can do. If you're starving for something, affection, for praise, for attention, for whatever it is. Know that nothing else in this world, career, people, relationships, money, pleasures, nothing, none of that will ever satisfy. No, go to the one who can satisfy. Again, look up. It's the Father. But it all starts and has always started with Christ. Our Messiah, our Savior, our King the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb taken to slaughter, and today signifies that day when obediently, faithfully, he walked into the slaughterhouse for you and for me so that we can have the Father. So take this time, just a moment, pray your prayers, Repent so that you can get right with God. If you've fallen away this week, 
Know that the grace of God is, up, is upon you, and he says, you can come back. Come back to me. Not tomorrow, not next week, but right now. You can. Because my grace is sufficient. Okay, let's take this time and pray, and then we'll go into our last song. Thank you.